I remember on the podium and you realise, you know, having never been to on an Olympic podium before, what happens next? What do you do now? And he goes, drop the flowers and don't cry. <laughs> so I personally blame him for my lack of emotion in Strictly in that the one bit of advice he gave me about emotion was drop the flowers and don't cry. In a moment where everyone cries and they get an Olympic medal. He goes, so, no, don't do it. It's like, great. So my tango and my jive is all your fault, Redgrave. Well, hello there, folks, and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast with me, Steve Ingham. Now, this podcast is all about exploring the dynamics of high performance with those people that have been there and done it, people who have supported others to succeed and have explored performance concepts in real depth. And if you're feeling like supporting and championing us, then please do leave a review on iTunes. Now, we individuals, groups and communities and societies look up to sporting heroes We revere and admire their dedication, their persistence and their focus, the sacrifices that they make to make the most of their often rare genetics and to do so on the greatest performance stage. Now, as the world battles coronavirus, we're all going to be required to make sacrifices that we've never made before in pursuit of applying ourselves to that collective goal of public health. Now, we thought long and hard about whether, while the world is taking a dramatic turn for the worst, whether the appropriateness of us publishing podcast episodes about the topic of human performance is even relevant. Now, certainly we can appreciate that if you normally tune in, but your head is elsewhere at the moment, then it might be better for you to switch off. Uh, Go and focus on what you need to do, which hopefully isn't stockpiling toilet rolls, by the way, and listen to this again when it suits you best. Well, we've decided to continue because perhaps these episodes can offer some inspiration, maybe an hour's worth of distraction, perhaps to help refocus you on what you need to do right now. Also, there are a lot of people now distancing and isolating for the first time in their lives, and I hope in some ways these episodes can be some sort of supportive company and a positive influence as the worry and the noise surrounding this outbreak increases. And so to this week's episode featuring my interview with James Cracknell. James is a two-time Olympic champion in the Coxless Four rowing event, part of perhaps the most renowned rowing crew of all time, the Sydney 2004, a team that I was honoured to support. Upon retirement, James didn't put his feet up. In fact, almost the opposite. He crossed the Atlantic with Ben Fogel, raced to the South Pole, kayaked the length of the River Thames, was at the time the fastest Briton to run the Marathon de Sable, completed the Yukon Arctic Ultra, and has run the London Marathon numerous times with a best time of 2 hours 43, which for a 90 kilo guy is phenomenal. At the time of recording, by the way, James was headed for the London Marathon in just a few weeks' time in April, but the event now has been postponed for now at least to October 2020. In 2010, James undertook the ride across America and, in a tragic accident, was hit by a petrol tanker, suffering a contra-coup brain injury, which has had a, a big effect on his life. He is now a campaigner for the use of bike helmets, which effectively saved his life. Now, last year, James became the oldest competitor and the oldest winner in the history of the Oxford-Cambridge boat race, twice as old as his crewmates and competitors, and older than some of his crewmates' dads. 
Now, I worked with James in the pursuit of this goal, and it was in many ways one of the most challenging cases that I've worked on to problem solve and innovate along that journey. In this conversation, James and I discuss his early drivers becoming part of a crew with some of the highest achievers in sport, Sir Steve Redgrave, Sir Matthew Pinson, why he kept pushing towards goals after he retired from Olympic sport, and his passions for public service, and how through public policy, he aspires to make the biggest difference to people's health and well-being. I do believe there is a lesson in here about creating intensity, about doing what we need to do to accomplish something of significance. I also think there's a message about feeling the fears, but rather than being paralysed by them, acting upon them. Whilst I've always sought to understand and work with James's focus and his ability to set goals for those extreme physical pursuits, And while I have in some ways some similarities in drive and motivation, I I couldn't do what he does. But I I liken James's endeavour to some of the most enduring explorers, the Ranulph Fiennes, the Eric Larsons and the Felix Baumgarters of the world. And I think, and well, this is just my theory, that in our short history as a species, we've actually needed people like James to strike out into the unknown and push the boundaries of what is possible. Right, well, welcome to the podcast, James. Thank you. Now, I was travelling down, to, down today and I was just thinking, um, I've got some long-standing relationships with athletes and coaches. Um, but I, even though there's probably a big block of time in the middle, I, it, you, it's probably the longest-standing working relationship that I've had with any athlete um, than with you. So that's like 1998 to present day. Yeah, and I think that that when I was at, at Cambridge last year and and injured and needed advice on training when I wasn't able to train in the in the rowing boat for the boat race, I you know, needed to get in touch with someone who knew my body you know, from when it used to be good and who I who I trusted <laughs> to be honest. And there are actually really very few people you work with or meet who fill that if you we all think about it who fill that category of actually okay they know you and are prepared to be honest about it prepared to be honest about it mm. as as in someone might be happy to tell you what you want to hear yeah well, or even what they think you want to hear so when it's you know, when i was you know, we were very successful for sort of four years from 96 up to 2000 in, in the cots before i rode in that we would if we'd have a, an international you know, race during a season, not a world championships, but a sort of world cup race and we'd win it. And we knew we'd had a pretty bad row. It wasn't a very good race. And people come up because they'd won. Go, you look great today. And you're going, no, we didn't. There's no way that looked good. And because they say, because they want to hear. And then the, when also when Jürgen Grober, who was our coach, it was, was a chief coach went away. We would have a, a different coach, come in and fresh pair of eyes but they'd almost not want to coach steve or matt and so they actually wouldn't and you know you see they're going that we're not doing this right and they wouldn't say it because they're afraid to offend someone in there if you're world champions or steve's olympic record whatever so you know it's really rare when you you meet someone who is prepared to be to be brutally honest and and that's why a lot of coaches 
if you even take football managers, you know, are not always popular players because they're not afraid to be unpopular. And I think that's a real sign of a a quality coach or, or in case football manager is someone who isn't isn't always looking to be most popular. They're prepared to make the tough decisions when it counts. And I think that's when you you know, when you aren't prepared to do that, then you, that's when it's time to move on. Mm. That's an interesting one in the sense that my experience of people who've gone from I'm not a champion, I'm I'm just an aspiring champion, and then they've become a champion and they sort of crystallise everything that they've they've done to become the champion. And that's that's the thing they want to do. They've got that certainty around, well, that's what I did just to get me to that Olympic gold medal or the, the world champion status. I'm going, to tr- I'm going to do that again to try and repeat success. And I remember that was sort of part of the conversation of a melee of thoughts as you're thinking about the, the boat race of, I know this works for me. This style of training works for me. I don't want to let go of that. But you couldn't do that mm. because of a number of different things that meant that you weren't you weren't in the same state so you had to shift gear that's quite a dynamic of just thinking I've got to do something I haven't ever done before and commit behind it yeah it was it was it was very strange having not done high level sport for 15 years and coming back into it and realizing very quickly that I didn't get anything for free um if you know, if, if we'd had the, the the selection of being over a fifteen mile running race or <laughs> or a really you know two hour ergo, a I would duathlon, you'd have liked that. <laughs> I would have, I would have been fine, but it was just I'd lost all top end power, and, and then I very quickly realised that it's not the be all and end all, but you just get something for free, and I wasn't getting anything like that. So it's a different way. I had to work out a different way to to work it, and the way that know we used to train is that i had a very i could tolerate the train load very well so in a war of attrition over a week or two week block i would grind everyone the people may be able to do it for two or three days but then i'll grind them down by the end and <laughs> the recovery time changes as you get older as well so it was it was a case of then working around that and i don't think when i sort of start that i've reached out to you when I got injured because I didn't think the, re- the rehabilitation program, you know, coaches are very good at saying road programs, but when you can't row, they'll just go, go on the exercise bike or go on the turbo trainer. And that's not, re- that's not really the same specific program they put into rowing. So it was then actually, okay, I needed to have a program that when I came back from being injured meant I came back at a higher level than everyone else which meant actually and then because I was injured I couldn't do weights it was actually you know, getting more dynamic you know, developing lactate acid tolerance and generating lactic acid and threshold all the things that I could do without actually being able to do the weights or being able to run for a start and and that's why I needed you know to ask for, for some help outside rather than a coach just going yeah just cycle for a couple of hours that'd be fine because it, it won't be fine and it might have worked when you were 24 or 28 just to just to keep things moving but so there was the triple whammy wasn't there There you'd been on the island program which is televised starvation um (laughs) then one way looking at it (laughs) you've done um you've affected well you say you've not been involved in top end sport 
that you've been you've been involved in some extreme but ultra endurance endeavors that puts the focus on that bottom end mm. fitness but at the neglect of the top end um and your age obviously so what you're 45 then you ticked over to 46 yeah by the time of the boat race or close to um so that means that you've lost muscle mass so that screams that you've you've got to work on the force generation being strong and then you being you threw yourself into it training load trying to replicate what you've done 10 years before or so or that meant that you've you broke down with various back injuries and spasms and ribs and so on um and the the interesting thing there was just how committed you were to to doing something quite novel because you were almost just boxed into a corner and and this idea of without rowing coming back stronger and fitter than perhaps your your contemporaries or the people that you're vying with against the um for a seat in the boat there's quite a lot mentally to be taken on there isn't there there's so many different dynamics the, the physical the mental the the academic challenge as well um as well as i'm on the back foot doing something completely different absolutely and and the it was strange from having couple of gold medals and, and world championships and stuff and going into a rowing program with people that didn't have that track record but then were also you know, young enough to be my kids um <laughs> was different and then in the first week when we did you know, to to cull the numbers down there's two flat out ergo tests and um any reputation i had going in there the first week was gone by the end of end of the second week because the coach said at the start for the first ergo test there's one rule don't come back if you stop. That was it. So just get to the end of it. And I can't remember finishing the 5K test. Um, I didn't stop, luckily, but I was also over a minute and a half off my best back in the day. So I then had to... And then I, I broke a rib. So then I was out for a long time and was ranked at the, at the bottom of the squad. But what didn't change, and this is where I am lucky from, is, was my belief that um, if I got back in a boat injury free my ability to race and not have to think about rowing when I was doing it would would get me further and being a little bit ruthless I think there's you know I think sports people before the top end they're not always the nicest people when they're in a competitive environment I think that would have that would have helped me but the, the crucial thing for me to get to that point of being in that selection battle would be having a program that worked and really believing in it. And and that's where I needed someone who was honest and would and knew my body. And that's why I I came to you. And and in a similar way of making the decision to go to you know, when I chose university when I left school, I was I'd won the under eighteen world championships and I chose the university that was closest to the rowing club where Steve Redgrave rode, who'd just you know, was Olympic champion. And well, two or three times the champion that by then, um, and my basis for that was that if I can beat him one day a month, and then if I can be, improve and beat him one day a week, and then I can beat him every day, then I'll be in the right position to win the Olympics. And you know, it took me a while to get there, but you know I was lucky enough to be able to train 
with someone in that environment and and just race myself against him, you know, it's, which is why it's say very different for someone like Andy Murray to be, but when he was world number one, so far ahead of the next British person, you're dragging the sport on your own. Um, whereas I was lucky enough to have someone to shoot at. Um, and that level of belief in what I'd achieved meant that if I believed in the program that was set in my forties and had to be changed, that come racing, I would, I'll be able to draw on that experience. Mm. So that, that's interesting from the point of view of kind of how you, you're mentally comparing with others, for example, and, and how that's a useful yardstick and benchmark. I guess you've always, you've had that benefit of having those legends in Steve Redgrave and Matt Pinson in your early career and how much of a driving force that was for you in those early days. Yeah, the, a huge driving force in terms of not only seeing how they trained, but seeing the difference between someone who's a good trainer and someone who's a good racer, in that there is a level that you you step up. Um, someone could be the best trainer in the world, but then can't can't race. Whereas Steve and Matt did step up for a race, but I don't think we're the best trainers in the world. And what made a big influence on me, especially when I was in the in the Cotswolds Four, you know, their Olympic Championships in '96, and and I knew if we went to the four for the next Olympics that me and another guy called Tim Foster, rowing with Steve Redgrave and Matthew Pinson, that if we lost, it would be our fault. And so the only, or would be seen as our fault, the only way we could you know, get out of that was to make sure we were the best boat possible when we got to the Sydney Olympics. And part of my job, I felt, was that it was to be really annoying to Stephen Matthew because what was good enough in 96 would not be good enough in 2000. And it didn't matter how many record medals you had, that was the one you, you wanted to get. And so to the point where you, know, you are annoying to them and you're not the best person to train with and you're always, you know, can be seen as negative. And you know, I was fortunate enough to be at the, at the top end of the trial so I could choose my pairs partner for the final selection race. And I chose not to row with either Steve or Matthew and to row with Tim based on the fact that if we beat Steve and Matthew our opinion would have to be respected by them and Jürgen in a different way in that, oh, no, I think we should do this. I think we should change this for this this week or focus on this would would be different than if they'd won the trials and we'd come second. They would still have over 50% of the say, whereas suddenly if we were, we'd beaten them, then we would have more of a say. And, I, and that's you know, the, the point of you've got to say something for me it was always about there's no point in after Olympic final thinking oh I wish I'd said that because there's only a point in saying if you say it before it only get listened to by people who've won before if you you've earned their respect and unfortunately that is by beating them and, and rowing is, is a different sport and I appreciate it's much easier in a team sport but so you're racing people to get into the boat and then at the same time those people that you're racing, you need them to perform as well as possible. And that's, it's a very difficult balance to strike, but it's actually easier to go through it when you've got other people going through exactly the same thing. And I think they will respect you more on the start line and will have the absolute trust in each other if you have beaten them up for four years. So, yeah, I suppose that's dissimilar from track and field where if the, the favourite doesn't turn up, that's great. Or if you're, 
your fellow country athlete, they, if they get an injury and they're a rival, good, good for you. That's great. But you don't want to drag everyone down in rowing. You want to make sure everyone's up, even if that means then you've got to step up even higher. And I suppose that's quite um, almost like an escalation of of the, that intensity. Um, I, I remember that that intensity in you and particularly Steve, not Tim and Matt so much, but um, <laughs> but. I remember Steve, who's an intense character, in one meeting, just saying, "Chill out, James." And I thought, "All right, James is James is going toe to toe with Steve Redgrave for focus and intensity and all in on this." Did that come? Was that there before you got into the four, or did that just get almost triggered at that point? The reality is that it was only it was only ever going to be a relief if we won because your favourites going to the Olympics and you won the World Championships. And so there was what was expected by us, but also of us, was was first place. And um, so there was almost a, a fear of failure, which is not the most positive thing to be motivated by. But at the same time, I think a lot of us in our lives are lived by fear of failure. If you think of the thing we have to do every month is pay your mortgage. And that's quite a negative thing for 25 years in that that's always there. Um, so the, the fear of failure motivated it. And also that if you didn't say it beforehand, there was no point in afterwards. And I didn't, it didn't bother me if I upset Steve. It would bother me more if we lost. And he's, he's big enough to um, accept criticism. And rowing as a sport does differ from, say, football in that one person can win you a football match. Um, whereas in rowing, it's very much how you get the weakest members of your team to work work up to the level. So you can set the level and keep pushing it up, but you need to take everyone with you. And that's a very, a very different thing. And I still think if I went back in time, it's the one thing I didn't do was, especially in relation to my career, and when I and Steve had stopped and you're, you're right at the, the top of the team, is that I was very much, it has to be done this way. And just, you know, hitting it, you know, training hard, you know, just doing the programme and not almost giving someone the freedom to say, no, I think it would be better doing it this way. Giving the freedom to try it. And then if it didn't work, they'd go, okay, I'll try it. It didn't work. Um, I would be much more like, no, this is the way it has to be. And then because you know, it was a situation where they didn't necessarily beat you very often, that they'd have to fall into line. Whereas if we'd given people the freedom, they think, oh, there's more ways to skin a cat. And I wonder if that's similar to people say how phenomenal Roy Keane was to play with. But as a manager, he hasn't reproduced that. Is that because he demands it in this way because it worked for him but the way he did it didn't work for anyone else um and therefore he kind of bullies them to try and do it his way rather than actually you know Paul Scholes did another way and then just kept quiet about it I don't know it's that sort of you wonder whether your character becomes too dominant that you don't give people the freedom to try another way which I think go back I'd like to think I would I would do that more Mm. I remember a bit of a conversation we had which was just about the, the strengths in the crew and and talking about Steve's phenomenal 
ability to generate force. He was super strong, Matt, with his huge pair of lungs and um, incredible endurance capability. Tim didn't quite have the physical, same sort of physical side, mm. but but had real artistry with the oar and could really move a boat. And and I said to you, you know, you've got a really strong immune system, and you're like, oh, cheers, mate, <laughs> as if it was just like, oh, that's not that's not really as sexy, cool, um, but but that you could you could cover the base, you could go and match Steve and Matt and and Tim in in so many different aspects, but you a ferocious trainer that you would always be pushing um, that aspect, but you'd also bounce back from it, which was. It's one of those qualities that often gets overlooked that somebody is only ever going to improve how much they can adapt. And you're going to adapt because you can sustain and maintain your training and mm. as a as a superpower. It doesn't it doesn't quite got the same thing as Peter Reed's lung capacity, but it's it's an all round package in that sense. Yeah, and that's but ultimately the the more more sexy talents aren't the the ones that win you the races. And if you look at as much as Cristiano Ronaldo is annoying in lots of ways, you, he puts himself in a great shape. Hmm. He, and if there's a pressure situation, he'll take the penalty. He'll take the crucial free kick. He doesn't shy away from it. As much as he might be annoying in one way to have when you see him, he'd be a vital part of it. And for me, one of the things that I did you know, when I used to row in the boat in the bow seat for the you know, for the four years after the Olympics, it's actually physiologically the, the easier seat because you know, as much as you can see everyone else, but also you you have to you basically just in some unless you're racing, you don't kind of work as hard because you know the sort of boat goes a straight line, it doesn't twitch about, and you're, you're sort of watching and, and counterbalancing the others. So if we would, had a big block where we're just training the four after sessions, I would do extra on the row machine because I. I I wouldn't be at the right heart rate all the time there, so I just knew it was on me to go and do that. Now, would everyone else have done that? I don't know, but um, I had a friend who played in the uh, on the Lions tour, and uh, Paul O'Connell, the uh, was captain of the of the the British Lions, uh, the Irish rugby captain. He in his meeting, he said that this is the the one thing that we are going to be the best at. Is everything that takes no natural talent, which is turning up on time, eating right, training hard, you know, all the things that, and uh, getting up as quick as you can after you've hit the ground of a tackle in the match, so that you're there. So everything that is not sexy doesn't require natural talent. If you're the best at them, you're suddenly going to be right up there, rather than necessarily relying on you know, Johnny Sexton or. Johnny Wilkinson or whoever the, the star or Ronaldo in, in the football terms of, uh, to, to bail you out of trouble actually if you as a group maximise the things that don't take a talent you're, you're very high up and in the same way that at the Olympics we or the World Championships we for the final we'd, we'd say that the, the lowest level of performance we accept is the best we've done in training and in that way, you weren't sitting on the start line going, I've got to do something I've never done before. Now, I'm pretty sure before the Beijing Olympics in training, Usain Bolt went under 10 seconds or broke the world record as it stood at the time. So he knew if he did his best in training, he would be pretty down near the front. And 
So he wasn't saying, right, I've got to run 968 to win. He goes, oh, I've done that in training. I mean, I've run 975 in training on my own. I'll use the atmosphere to build me up. And I think that's a big part of the, the confidence you get in training is, is putting yourself under pressure and delivering and then not then having to do something in your head that you've never done before. So that's, that's diligence. There's a sense of, um, well, if I'm going to aspire to a goal, then I might as well do it well and, and pursue that. But I, I wonder if you can reflect on that. Sort of after Sydney, I remember you were training back straight away. Um, after each of those peaks, you'd then go again, whereas most people would be out there enjoying the moment in that sense. There's, a, there's that, that ferocity that you've got around going to the next thing or pursuing, jumping to that next particular goal. But it also depends on the, on the people within your sport. It's interesting watching people winning a sport, say in this country, where no one's done it before and how that affects them. So say Brad became the first guy to win the tour. Then he didn't go back and defend it. He wanted to do other stuff. And whether it be, you know, actually Andy Murray has gone back and won other Grand Slams. But he hasn't become a Nadal or Federer. Um, well, let's face it, no one else has. Or they say the England cricket team, when they won in 2005, they didn't win the next Ashes. You know, that you need to build on success. And I think a lot of that comes from having people within your sport, you know, within, within professional cycling. Brad didn't have someone who won one tour and then won the next. Within the cricket team, we were on the Ashes for so long, there was no, you've got to win it again and again. Within rowing, we had, pl- we had people who won one gold medal, two gold medals, three gold medals, four gold medals, five gold medals. There's, so you think, okay, one isn't very much. And that meant it was okay. In fact, Jürgen Grobler, our coach, at the airport, so rowing's the first week of the Olympics. At the, the end of the, so the second week to enjoy yourself, at the airport going home, he came up to me and he goes, uh, anyone can win once, real champions do it again. <laughs> and I remember thinking, a week. You give me a week to enjoy it. And... Because Steve Redgrave and, and Tim Foster retired, who both rode on the same side of the boat, and when Matthew Pinson and I carried on, and we both rode on the same side of the boat. So after rowing 12 or 13 years on one side, I had to change over to row in a pair with Matthew because us combined would have made it very difficult to find equal strength on the other side. And so it's not like learning to play tennis with the other hand, but it's like going from a single backhand to a double. And and do it without thinking and that meant I was going to I had to think about it which I, I started training early because you don't get many chances in sport so you know people don't think oh he's changed sides we'll give him a year it's like you've got to perform straight away and Jürgen as well decided that those world championships and our first ones after the Olympics he'd make us double up which no one had won both you know the Cots pair and Cots pair at the same time and which in a way you're involved in making sure we we're able to race twice on the same day but it took away that pressure meant that you almost forgot I forgot I wasn't rowing on the different side of the boat it was suddenly became can you recover in two hours to to race fresh people again and I think that's part of a, a good coach as well is actually upping the stakes so that you forget about one small part of it and focus on the on the bigger thing that's funny because you didn't tell me about the doubling up till like July I could have done it with a run up for that <laughs> well we <laughs> We'd hoped that the governing body would have, because the rain program was divided into yeah. two, and there'd always been, you know, one was group A, one was group B, so there'd be 
you'd race Monday one, Tuesday and the other, Wednesday. So they'd be alternate days. Whereas they decided, no, no, we're going to have them both on the same day and two hours apart. So we asked them to change it. And they went, no, because the Cox pair is not in the Olympics anymore. So which is a bit more flexibility it's on the world championship schedule, but not the Olympic schedule. So we'd hope they'd move it, but they didn't. They, or they, or they, the, only, the only allowance they gave us was that we didn't have to turn up for the medal ceremony for the, for the Cox pair if we'd won a medal. But because it was before the Cox's pair, but we'd asked at least, can we have the Cox's pair first, which was our the tougher event with the people that would race at the Olympics. And they went, no. So we had to race that event after the Cox pair. And it was mentally really hard because I remember in the warm-up between race Cox pair, won that, wound down, you know, you'd come up with a programme to you know, make sure we cooled down before yeah. we warmed up again. And I remember in the warm-up, I just felt terrible. And you know, I was lying to... Matthew and I lied to each other about how we were feeling and by halfway it was clear we had been lying because we won the semi-final by five seconds and at halfway in the final we were four seconds down and at that point it's only it's self-belief in in that you've beaten these guys before but also I think vanity comes into a lot of motivation of uh, we haven't spoken about in some ways you're pretty arrogant to think you can beat your opposition having raced already and our opposition didn't want to lose to us having raced already. And they go, who are these people? Who do they think they are? And if you've made a statement like that, you have to go and back it up. And I think that, I think vanity is a really, and not wanting to look stupid, is a powerful motivation. And we could race that race a number of times and, and the result would have been different. We won by a hundredth of a second. So we were ahead for one stroke of the race. And I think as much as you know, Matt and I massively believed in each other and our ability to do it, I think a big part of it was, was vanity as well. Yeah, and, and that's, that's an interesting concept in itself in, in terms of thinking I've got my fitness goals or I, I want to I achieve this in my life. But as soon as you start making it public and as soon as you say, right, I'm entering this triathlon or I'm doing this, um, I'm, I'm doing marathon de sable or something like that then it suddenly becomes real mm. as soon as it's published on facebook or wherever it might be when you might be looking for sponsorship then that social pressure just comes in hugely and obviously then you've got the sporting and the press everybody looking in about that um well you're right i mean it's, it's people you know, the london marathon's coming up you know it's a, a great fundraising event but once you said you're doing it you've again got to finish it. And if you then say what time you're going to go for, you've got to, you've put pressure on yourself by saying you're going to finish, by saying what time you're going for. And uh, the reality is, you know, one of the first questions people ask you is what, what time do you do? It doesn't have to be elite sport. It's actually you, by, by nailing your colours to the master saying you're going to do that event or what time you're going to do, you've suddenly put it out there, which I think is a really good thing because it actually makes you get up and do it. So it's not, whether it's the going back and, and learning um, different side rowing stroke or whether you just want to get a bump in your fitness, but, but even after Athens and since you retired as an Olympic rower, including the boat race, I suppose, um, you've become renowned for setting extraordinary goals and pursuing that, that endeavour. What What's, what's going on there then? Why, why is that? I mean, that's probably the number one question that I would imagine most people would ask you about what's driving that. Well, it's, it's interesting. I, I kind of, um, my wife, um, who I was married to for, who I started dating just after the 2000 Olympics and uh, was with you know, right through through to Athens and, and way beyond, um, 
but one of the first events we went to together was something after the Olympics in Sydney. And she said, I remember coming out, she's going, show me a room of Olympic gold medalists and I'll show you a room of insecure people. And it's it a really interesting observation for someone outside the sporting world of what motivates. You know, there is a lot of insecurity. You're, you're justifying to yourself how good you are as a, as a person, as a boyfriend, as a work colleague, as a teammate, by where you're on a ranking rather than how good you, you feel about yourself. And the other thing that she said was, for you, it's all about the destination, not the journey. And you know, she's right in that the Olympics was a, a four-year campaign, which you're lucky enough to be doing what you enjoy every day. But the reality is one day will determine whether those four years have been a waste of time. And so you're instantly focused on that one day. And the other things I've done after there's always been a finish line and it's been the battle to get to the start line and then to get to the finish line rather than enjoying the process and to be honest the uh the boat race was actually a really interesting challenge in that i had to manage a number of personal issues at the time that year and also go back to studying, which was, you know, when I was first at university, there was no internet. So that's how long ago it was. And there's a, having to you know, get on top of studying again and go back to high-level sport. And it suddenly didn't become about the the journey to the boat rest day or handing in my, my thesis at the end of it all. It was actually making sure you make the most of every day and enjoy it because, you know, coping with... You know, stress of going through a separation and academia, academic challenges, and you know the boat race is very time-consuming. And if you're not enjoying some of it and making the most of it, you're not going to achieve anything. And the other thing is that you know, the Olympics, you've got a get-out-of-jail-free card for being sociable, for because people understand what you're doing it for. Um, so you can get out of game dinner with people you don't want to because you go, oh, I've got a training day tomorrow, whereas that doesn't work. And especially with what I was dealing with in terms of separation, academic studies and the boat race, those three pots didn't care about the other two. So if you're with separation, there was no <laughs> sympathy given to, oh, I've got something to hand something in tomorrow, I've got a, you know, this big selection. Or, and the boat race didn't care what academics you had to hand in or you're going through a separation and academics did not care about the boat race. So you'd, you're happy to make the most of you know, of every every minute you've got and enjoy it and at the same time not be resentful that one you know, of those pots is taking over, over your life. And, and that was actually very refreshing because I could come back to the academic work, refresh from having been focusing on other things and come back to the, the training for the boat race fresh and look forward to it because it was a break from studying a break from talking to lawyers about separation so i'd learned a lot a huge amount about it and i think i would actually be better placed now to go back into sport and advise the you know the, the guys in the in the team because i was the last of the you know the internationals who before there was any funding so you you kind of work part-time to be able to train part-time full-time know you you've got a job where you're you're effectively you go into to office with two jackets and you always leave one on the back of a chair and one on the back of another chair and you get you may put coffee on that desk so that 
there's always a hot cup of coffee in a desk whenever someone walks around and doesn't realize you've bunked off to go training you know that's whereas now they're full-time and they're full-time athletes but you know, they may be better at playing games social media but actually are they using the time away from sports you do have time as a full-time athlete the best thing is about being a full-time athlete is not that you can train that much harder as you can rest that much more and if you're not using that rest time to progress as a you know, use the skills that make you a great athlete in terms of determination discipline tough out under pressure communicate all those things if you, all you're doing is your sport and then filling time between your sport you're not growing as a person and and i think that's a last year especially i realized how much you can make of your time and for example in the boroughs that we meet six o'clock every morning um you'd train and a half two hours and then you'd go to lectures and uh for the first week i would finish my training sessions in the morning we're all training you know, we're alongside each other on the rowing machine and 10 minutes later i'll be on my own in the change room they'd all gone they'd all literally got changed and legged it to their back to their college for breakfast and then straight off to lectures whereas you've been used to being a full-time athlete you can faff about like nothing else and so i literally would and we'd go rowing in the afternoon and i'd be faffing around and they'd driven off because they assume i'm in the bus whereas I literally had only just made upstairs the changing room because I was faffing around with something because as a full-time athlete, you can half fill time like no one else. You know, your to-do list, I remember when I lost friendly came in a sponsorship, my to-do list for one day, I remember it was you know, the training programme and then I'd put in shave and post letter. That was my, <laughs> that, that was, suddenly realised, okay, I need to do something else in my time. If, if my to-do list is involved shaving and posting a letter, I need something else in my life. <laughs> so am I hearing some wisdom uh, <laughs> developing in terms of um, Bev mentioning to you there about the outcome versus the process and the journey versus the destination that, I can and, and I can certainly understand and hear, you know, if you're on a boat with some Olympic legends and if you don't win, then it's reflected to you. So that fierce focus on the outcome is going to be really mm. um, present. But am I, am I hearing almost a bit more about enjoying the process, uh, taking time to be mindful and soak it up and whether that's the camaraderie or whether that's the, the you know, appreciative of what you're actually doing. Am I hearing that now as opposed to what's the next goal? I think so. I think I was at the Atlanta Olympics and I got ill on the day of the opening ceremony so I couldn't race. And so there's always that nagging, what if that happens again? doesn't matter how good you are for these you know, four years, you just need to make sure everything's right. So that was that I didn't want to have to lie in a quarantine room again. I think that was a big motivating factor. But I think that did drive me to the extent that nothing was ever good enough, which I do think it made me not enjoy the, the years as much as I could have. And if there'd been four of me in a boat, we'd have combusted. Whereas uh, the reality you know, in, in, say, Matthew Pinson is like a big grizzly bear. You could just prod him and prod him and prod him. And only every so often would he lash out and then that'd be quite annoying and hurt quite a lot. But he, he, he could take it and Steve, you could push, push, push and then he'd just dig his heels in and that was it. You weren't going anywhere. So I think the combination of personalities meant that I was able to be like that. I, I think I was very lucky in that they were in the boat in terms of how 
we all fed off each other and our personalities somehow worked together, whereas that wouldn't be the case. And I looked, actually, I kept a diary every day from Athens, from Sydney through to Athens every day and write down, not just a training, I wrote down how I was feeling about it. And the middle two years, there was so much more of hating it um, because the glow of one Olympics is gone and the next one hasn't appeared over the horizon. And it was just tough. And I just thought, I looked back after Athens to decide whether I was going to carry on or not. I just thought I was just miserable in those two years. Now, you're funded and sponsored and winning and you're outside all the time doing what you enjoy. You should be enjoying it. And it's not just the pressure of, of wanting to to win that didn't make me enjoy it. I think it, I felt I sometimes had to motivate people I was training with which is a big burden and part of me retiring was I didn't want to be a burden on other people but I think it, you take a lot on yourself but at the same time I probably should have had conversations about with them about it as well and they would have I would have probably learned they were motivated they're just doing it differently and not everyone has to do it the same way but yeah I think it is vital to to enjoy it and to reward yourself and to have um, times when you you do let yourself you know, relax. And part of that is relationships as well. You, 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 you very quickly, because you're in endurance sport, you're training a lot and you're not going out as much because, you know, as your mates because you're training and they're, they're living lives as they should in their 20s. Um, so you actually fall into a relationship that's easy for you in terms of with a, with a girlfriend that is prepared to put up with a grumpy, um, monosyllabic eating and training machine. But actually, it's probably not the best relationship for her and, and probably not the one for you. And you you kind of settle for a lot of things rather than actually making the most of of it. And I think going back, you think, okay, actually, that's not the... Uh, it wasn't fair on you or me. And you think, okay, well, I can't go out. I'm, you know, It's better to be in a nice easy relationship whereas easy relationships aren't always the most fun and then that side of it is actually good to go out with someone who brings something totally different you know, I, it's great um, going out with someone who does not care about the sport that you do has no interest in it and I made the constitution not to go out with another rower for a start because that would be I couldn't imagine anything worse than dating myself. That'd be an absolute nightmare. And let's face it, the pot of people you mix with in row, you may be different, but you're still in one very small part of a Venn diagram together. And you want to, a part of enjoying life is actually having people with different opinions come in. And if you're training seven days a week for six weeks and then you get a day off, you're only seeing the same people. And that's reflective. But, you know, I didn't get a mobile phone until I was 30 because I. I was thinking, well, I'm in the same place. People know where I am every day. And actually, you, you become stuck in the same faces way more than any other office. And I think those habits make it very hard to have an outside perspective and realise actually it's just one small part of life. I mean, we've had Alex Partridge talking about post-athlete experience now um, just in the last couple of weeks. And uh, recently on a podcast, Lizzie Simmons, who talks very articulately and honestly about that transition post-athlete, post um, that pursuit of optimal performance. But in some ways you haven't really stopped in that sense. You've, you've always, I mean, it seems as though maybe some, maybe a year or two between, but you've always had an endeavour that you're pursuing. Um, 
and you're still going for a, for more more things. What's the how do you how do you look back at at that and understand it? And is is that ever going to stop? Steve Regove always said I stopped too early. I mean, that's for, he's fine once talking. He probably stopped too late, but <laughs> yeah, I he said that I had another one in me, and you know, I, I believe I did. Looking back on Dara, I spoke well. I I wasn't enjoying all of the four years. Um, whether it was worth going on for another four, I wasn't sure. And I thought if I went on for another four years, all I would be was a rower. I'd race with Steve and I'd seen what that does if you you are what you did. Whereas for me, the Olympics was something I did, not who I am. Um, and that was a a big part of of wanting to stop and do something different. But then all that did was shift, I think, the drive and ambition and, and focus onto something else with a long-term plan and a destination, whether that be rowing across the Atlantic or going to the South Pole or the idea to want to get into politics. None of those are short, short-time things. They've got a, a very binary, a very binary result. You know, the, you know, you either make it across the Atlantic or you don't. You either get to the South Pole or you don't. You either get elected or you don't. Or the boat race, when I went back to do that, you know, there's a, a room filled with whatever, there's hundred and think the 165th boat race and, there's a room called the captain's room at Cambridge and there's like a little sort of, you know, eight by 10 inch board with all the names on and all it says is won or lost. It doesn't say anything else. It's very binary whether you win or lose and, and the course, you know, 60% above it you've passed, below it you failed. And those are things I can relate to. So I think may have swapped Lycra for, you know, Gore-Tex in the South Pole or, you know, a gown at Cambridge, but there's still that, that same binary success or failure is... Is something that I, I think I do live by. And when we were doing the Olympics, it was very binary for us. It was first or nothing. It wasn't silver's better than third or you know, third's better than fourth. It was first or failure. Because if you set your goal for first, it doesn't matter if it's second or last, then both of them haven't achieved your aim. And you make it a nicer medal for coming second than coming last, but it's not the one thing you're after. When we last worked together, we were talking about what bike sessions or um, trying to load your arms or legs without touching your spine, um, pre-race tactics, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, and then you went and went did Strictly. What, what was going on there? In terms of pushing yourself further, what was? Tell me about Strictly because that was unusual. Yeah, time. well, Strictly. Yeah, it was. It was unusual, and it was in those shows. There's generally. Um, also boxes they want to tick whether that be you have an actor you have a singer you have a comedian you have an ex-sportsman and I was I'd, I'd been asked a number of times as a to fill the ex-sportsman category and I knew I would be absolutely terrible um, and I always said no previously and then I was coming out of having graduated at Cambridge so I had time when the, the show was being filmed when they asked me um, and then I also from having gone back to Cambridge and realised very quickly within the first two weeks that I put myself in a position of, okay, I can do this. I can, of course I can study and live with people who've just come off an undergraduate course and I can pick it up again. I haven't studied for 20 years and I can pick up rowing again and make the boat race having not rowed for 15 years. I'll be fine. I'll do that. And then got there and then gone, whoa, I can't, you know, what was I thinking in doing that? And then finding a way through it and all the time living with the, for me, I remember one of the questions they asked me was, would you be prepared to row in the reserve boat? Which is, you know, I guess, the 
the B team, and and I'd I said yes because I assumed I would never be in it. Whereas actually, I was looking, I was going to be in it. I was injured, if if that at all. And so, right up for, for the for six months, five six months, I was faced with, from my perspective of, you know, being humiliated by saying I'm going to go to Cambridge and then not passing and not making the boat race and. And the confidence to, to come through that meant that when Strictly asked, I was like, look, I know I can't dance, but what's the worst that can happen? At the Olympics, you, you, you know how you know, you've done enough training, you've won the World Championships, you know what you're doing is going to put you in the right place. Whereas 30 years at Cambridge, I didn't know whether it was good enough. And going to Strictly, I knew it wouldn't be good enough, but I thought, well, what, what's the worst that could happen? And so I, I took it off. So I said yes on the basis that actually... What is the worst that could happen? And and as soon as you, even the first two weeks of being there, okay, I knew I couldn't dance, and that did, you know, my sense of rhythm has never been that good, and then my sense of coordination either, which is why I rode. But the the real difference in that first two weeks was you seeing other people from all different walks of life. There's a couple of other exports people on there, and we were the ones that were afraid of looking stupid and afraid of showing weakness. And I think when you do sport. You, you have that honed into you. Do not show weakness. Do not show you're tired. You know, I remember we'd finish a race and we'd turn around as quick as possible and paddle away. Not show the opposition we're tired. Not show you're weak. Um, dancing, you have to be prepared to look stupid to improve. And aside from having no rhythm or coordination, I wasn't something within me wasn't prepared to look stupid. And I think that's it's actually taught me a huge amount in terms of the confidence to actually put yourself in a position you know you'd be bad at. It's something I've never done before. And I, took a, I do take a lot from that. And the next thing is you've got to be prepared to look stupid. If you're a, a PR advisor to, to Boris Johnson, some of the stunts that he's pulled in a harness swinging around, other politicians wouldn't do because they're, they don't, they're, or their advisors don't want them to look stupid. But by being prepared to do that, puts him in a different way. He's the only politician that's known by one name which is very powerful in terms of um, you know, being elected for people who wouldn't normally vote for, for that party. But the ability to look stupid and put yourself in a position where you have the confidence to, to look stupid is a, a very powerful, powerful thing. And I'm not there, but it's actually, looking back on it, it's, a, you know, it's probably a, an equally brave decision to, or an unusual decision to put myself in that situation. So almost being feeling exposed, that was going to come because you weren't, you didn't have the the skill or the natural link that maybe say a um, somebody who's got agility in their locker mm. that that might come. Um, but the vulnerability to almost expose your soul or <laughs> this is who I am, yeah, uh, as opposed to just feeling or having to present a superpower or a superhuman front. Yeah, well, to be honest, you're right, presenting the front. They, as much in staying in that show, much of it comes down to your VTs and the interviews you do as you're dancing. And when they're asking you an interview, you know, lead, they want to say, this is the most important thing I've done, how much it means to you. I really, you know, I'm not an actor. I couldn't fake how much it meant to me. Would I, would I, did I want to go off first? No. Are you going to win it? No. Those are the two. You know, there's not many. You know, so I think being able to fake emotions is important for that, 
you know, to get people to actually buy into it. And then you need to be act and emotive when you're dancing, which in what I was doing in the sport, you just wouldn't show any emotion because you wanted to, to not show any weakness at all. Where the weakness and vulnerability are hugely important, especially in an artistic and when you, you want people to, to be on side with you. It was interesting in terms of, you know, it took Luba and I you know, all week to learn the dance rather than the first couple of days and then the rest of the guys have spent polishing it. We were still, you know, working out how to get this idiot into rhythm. Um, but our best dance of the week was on the show, which is quite worrying and how bad I scored. But, you know, the ability to perform when you had to was still there. Even if it was with a bad performance, it's still the best we'd done. And it was interesting know within the hour before the show how people cope with nerves and two or three of us from the sporting side were absolutely fine with it we could nerves wasn't the problem it was the ability to show emotion right and and perform and act were were the things that were holding us back the the nerves weren't when we all you know we generally do our the best times we had all week but the you didn't take the audience with you because, or the judges with you, because it was, there was no emotion. You weren't acting it. You didn't show vulnerability in the same way. There's a couple of things that spring to mind there. So um, the first world championships I came um, with you to the rowing um, in Cologne, 98. And I can remember being in the boathouse and it was quite a cold windy wet day the final mm, and yeah. i can remember i can remember just just being hanging around not trying to get in the, trying to get out of the way but but soak up enough of the that environment and steve kind of rallied you up got got you to put your glasses on and the four of you just sort of walked out i don't think you wanted to um it was a sort of a sense of well, what we're we doing this for but it was almost like a bit of a walk around the boathouse, just almost to, to demonstrate who you were. And I could see like the Kiwis, I could see the Aussies looking over and, and looking, there they are. And the, the race was all, almost won before because of some of those statements of, of that display, that show, that, um, that aura that it kind of creates. Um, but that is emotionless in that sense that you're trying to trying to park all of those worries and doubts and thoughts to be able to demonstrate that which is completely the opposite of what you just described about strictly yeah no and it's it's, steve was there's a couple examples of you learn a lot from what's drilled into you over a number of years you can't then you can't then change and i think there's three examples that spring to mind with steve is those races you mentioned in the World Championship in Cologne, it, was, it turned out to be a really tough final. And I was throwing up after the final. And um, Steve sat in front of me and I remember him grabbing my hair and just pulling my head across to the other side of the boat. Um, so, I'd, you know, so I'd throw up and he, he would just go, he just went, don't let them see you being sick. So he basically he moved my head out of, so it was not in their vision. And you're thinking... <laughs> Well, that's looking back thing that's great you know he just wanted, he didn't want them to know how hard we'd raced and then another example is the year the world championships the year before the olympics in 99 we were 
um, Steve and I did the course during the race, and we were uh, 500 metres to go. We were probably length and a half up, which is about four seconds up. But we were, I had the clock about a couple of seconds up on the world record at that time, and I, I knew you know, what time you hit 1500 at. And so I, I could write, and I thought, that's all right, break the world record, heading to Olympic year three times world champion you know th- this is the best way to do it and so I called it to go and Steve went no and then I called it again and he went no and then he crossed the line we won by about a second the uh, Italians and Aussies came, came right back and he had the medal ceremony I had a massive argument with Steve after saying what are you doing we could have gone in as you know, we, we had him we could have won by a long way we could have got the world record and then he goes do you want them to go away all winter and think they've got to improve by five seconds or think they've got to improve by a second and I remember thinking oh that's really annoying that's you can think argument. that clearly under pressure but you know, they, they, they thought the bar they had to raise to raise themselves to was lower and so come next year we only won by 0.3 or just 0.4 of a second that you know did that make a difference but he's telling you to be sick to show that you've really worked hard <laughs> and, the th- and the third thing that he in terms of being emotionless i remember on the podium and he realized you know i've never been to on an olympic podium before what happens next what do you do now and he goes drop the flowers and don't cry <laughs> so i personally blame him for my lack of emotion in strictly and that the one bit of advice he gave me about emotion was drop the flowers and don't cry in a moment <laughs> where everyone cries and they get olympic medal he goes so, no don't do it it's like, <laughs> great so my tango and my jive is all your fault Redgrave. so if you'd grabbed the flowers and cried and strictly maybe you'd done <laughs> <laughs> i could have done any worse so um let's try and round this out now because you so I remember talking to you about what, why are you going for the boat race and you talked about the, the reasons for you to be studying, studying evolution and behaviour and so on with this idea of, of influencing a much broader uh, purpose around inspiring physical activity and being active in that space of, of using the, the, the reputation that you have but also wanting to know how to Mm. more and more about that area so that you can um, inform the policy decision-making that's going on. With what you've just described then about focus, endeavour, the outcome, um, not necessarily perhaps enjoying the journey as much, realising as part of of strictly that your behaviours will influence others in in different ways. Are we going to see you're in the London Marathon waving to people or connecting people or high-fiving, are you going to be pursuing the goal of, I don't know, sub-245 or whatever it's going to be, or, or are you going to be thinking about your influence and behaviour that other people might think, you know what, I, I might better do something like that? Well, that's... <sighs> Sorry, that's... that's no, I don't, I don't think... I'm, I'm not going to be uh, waving. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think... But also having had a, you know... A, an accident that altered my life, but also you know a life-threatening accident, uh, and you know, suffered traumatic brain injury. I think it's a it's important to show people who are going through a tough time that actually, in much of the Olympics, it was something I did, not who I am. The accident happened to me, but it's not who I am. And so, I want to show that actually you can come back stronger than people think you can if you let other people set limits for you that's all you'll achieve and i that so 
that side of it, I think the marathon, I, I definitely won't be uh, waving that much. Um, it's hard enough for me to lumber around <laughs> on my own, let alone wave. And let me sh- let also strictly show that I can't do more than one thing at once. So <laughs> if I wave and run, I'll end up falling over. Um, but in terms of the politics, the one thing that my mum worked for the NHS and it's the institution I'm most proud of, and if I can have a positive influence on policy that helps preserve that and makes us live our lives and get the most out of our lives, then I think that is that is really important. And I'd love to... I've been lucky enough to benefit from the public's love of sport. And the reality is that sport isn't going to help save, and even physical activity isn't going to help save the sort of lifestyle disease we have. It's about the right policy that affect the right people. And it is going to be a journey that, you know, it's the one thing that, that sport has is that you can control it. You can control your destiny. Whereas politics you can't you can't as we all know in relationships fail and because you can't control people's minds you, you can try and advise them as the right thing and and that's what i think is the challenge and appeal of politics you actually have to work out how to to work with people and to get them to see that actually a different side to the argument in terms of you taking you know, a really small example of of food policy and, and how to get people to make the right choices in life. If you, those policies have to work out which people are, are the most vulnerable. And 20% of, of the country, all they have in their kitchen is a kettle, a microwave, and a toaster. And 20% of the country don't have a table. So you realize that suddenly choices that they have to be made at a different level and not be too specific. And you've got academics who go so far into the detail rather than actually you need to work out the bigger scale problems. And behavior is a big part of it and and the one thing we do have in this country i i and i think is is probably more prevalent in this country is that we very very quickly pigeonhole people and it's hard to get out of that box into another one which is why there are career politicians you want but i think you want people with different experiences coming into politics and but we need to be able to show we can leap out of boxes and i'd like to think i can I can't leap out of a rowing boat into a pair of dancing shoes, that is for sure. Uh, I went to Cambridge not to get back into a rowing boat. I enjoyed getting back to a rowing boat. I went there to, to you know, fuel my learning and add academic credibility to, to my passion in this area. But at the same time, annoyingly, I can't control people's minds to, <laughs> to make it happen any faster. And so is that the next goal? Is that the next hope or the next ambition for you? Is that the, is that the big one that... It is. I, th- I think it, it, I, I'm a passionate believer in in public service. You know, my mum worked for the NHS. I, you know, if I hadn't been ill at the Atlanta Olympics, I would have gone into the armed forces and, and served that way. But having not raced, I wanted to race, and by that time I was too old. So if I can do a public service in a different way, I will do. And you have to have your your motivations to get in and. Um, public health policy is one motivation and then you know my personal experience of head injury you know depression uh, and the importance of mental health and actually asking for help when you need it rather than leaving it too late and realizing good mates will be there for you and you're not a burden if you speak to them and I think that's a a big part of what I your experience is help shape you and what you want to do um, rather than letting them define you. 
and a two forty something marathon. <laughs> yeah, well, what is the next sporting goal? Because okay, and, and I, I'm conscious that sometimes asking you this might actually fuel some of it. <laughs> but, well, well so, so I will do the marathon. Um, so if I had to say a time, it would be I'd aim for a two forty five. That is seriously good, and you don't real. I don't know whether you realise just how good that is for your size. You must know. Well, it's the reality is that it's. I did. In, I was a full time athlete in endurance sport for a long time, and so you, you. It's not the same as someone who has had to work full time and then run on the side. So I've, I do have that benefit, which is slightly countable being heavy. I have the ability to train hard and empty my tanks. Um, I need to train a bit more clever in terms of doing the right speed, but rather than going down the same pattern that I had, you know, what just what's been built in of just go, if, it, if you've got a problem, just go harder for longer is not necessarily the way. And the other thing is that although I have discipline to train, I don't have the same self-discipline with diet in that I probably for too much of my life have, have managed weight with diet and sorry weight with and and diet with exercise whereas actually the truth is you can't outrun a bad diet if it takes you half an hour three miles an hour to walk off a can of coke then you can't outrun what you put in so you need to make the right choice and so if i could lose a few kilos i wouldn't have to train as hard but i have so much more discipline when it comes to hard training than good eating (laughs) There you go. See, there's that super strength, but not in the wrong, the right place. <laughs> exactly. There. I remember when you came into the old British Olympic Medical Centre, 2004, and uh, and you said, "Look, you phoned me up and said, look, I fancy doing the marathon.'" And I thought, "Okay, sounds like a nice little venture." And then you came in, and, I, and you said, "I'm hoping for a sub three. And we'd done a treadmill test, and I don't know if you remember this, but you said, um, "I'm hoping for sub three. Okay. Do you want to have a go at what that feels like? Put you up to fourteen kilometers an hour, and you're chunking away there, smashing the treadmill up. That poor, poor thing. And it, uh, and you think you just said, "Bloody hell, that is that's a lot faster than I thought it was." And then you were straight in, classic James Cracknell. What do I need to do to improve that? And then we started talking about running economy and efficiency of movement. And you're like, right, show me. And we, do you remember we got, we got some hurdles out? And I was still sprinting at the time, and I got some hurdles out, little mini, mini hurdles, put them in front and, and sort of showed you little, those, those tiny little hurdles, skipping over them. Mm. And, right, have a go at doing that. And I think I put six out, and you collected about four of them, <laughs> <laughs> of that coordination that, that was definitely my, dominating my thoughts when you went to Strictly. But um, <laughs> You're not wrong. And then I remember thinking, as you uh, having a chat with some of the guys, thinking, well, if there's one person that's probably going to do that, it's going to be you of where you're at versus where you need to get to. But then you pursuing that. Um, and that that was the marathon back in 2004, and now we're in. Well, but I did. I remember I did that, and I did uh, three hours ten seconds, and I was one uh, twenty five or something going through halfway, and. Uh, and just realise how wrong you can you can get something. And I was uh, sponsored by um, Addis at the time, and, and they give me a bonus if I ran three hours. And uh, and they actually said, you, you, you're close, you can have it. And I go, I don't want it. 
we'll double or quits it next time. And it was the not the frustration of having missed it, it's the frustration of, of having missed it through stupidity and not trained that my way of doing it was to train longer at pace rather than make your pace feel slow. And that's what you do learn is, is how to be how to be clever at, at those things and then also utilize what you have and you know for me it's it's if i have a focus on the on the race it's going to be that you know, third quarter of the race in tower bridge you know the from sort of miles 13 through to 19 that's where you've got to open it and lay it down you know, you've got to that third quarter is where you start having doubts and you're heading away from the finish line going around Canary Wharf and you know, I, the last bit's always going to hurt so I have faith that I can tough it out but I don't have faith that I can lift it in the last quarter so <laughs> you may as well just bury yourself in that in that third quarter and I think that's where it does come the ability of rather than yeah disadvantage of being slightly big the advantage of having of knowing what your limits are I think are quite is, is a very useful thing because you know of all the things I've done, the marathon is hard. It is not that you don't get a marathon for free. You may be able to get a nice pair of trainers that that make you go two minutes quicker. But you ask people who are wearing vapor flies at eighteen miles <laughs> whether they think they're worth it, and they'll be going, "Just get me to the finish. I don't yeah. care." And I think that's the the reality. A marathon is hard. It's, you know, it's weight bearing and it's tough, and which makes it a very special day. Mm. Well, we'll tune in and, and see how you get on. And um, it's been um, it's been a, a delight to actually have this conversation in the sense that we often, our conversations are as, how are you? What are you focused on? <laughs> what's what's creaking? Uh, what's the feedback? What are the splits? And, and actually taking a bit of time just to have the conversation about life, I guess, and hear your reflections and... Um, you reflecting on on something I've seen from a distance as much as uh, as someone supporting you. So, James, thanks so much for, no, thanks for coming it's been, on. Been really good. You can follow James's exploits on Twitter and Instagram at James Cracknell. You can follow us on Twitter at support underscore champs and me at Ingham underscore Steve. Do check out some of our updates on our LinkedIn company page, Supporting Champions. Check out our new website where you can subscribe for the latest updates. And if you're feeling like supporting and championing us, then please do leave a review on iTunes for the podcast. <laughs>